Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Silverwood. This is an exciting day for Ocean Impact Organization because today we launch the Ocean Impact Pitch Fest 2020. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. Today, you can formally apply to Ocean Impact Organization to take your great idea to the world. Applications are open now from the 25th of August 2020 and will remain open until the 5th of October 2020. So applying is easy. Head to our website and you'll follow the prompts to submit a simple form and if you meet the application criteria, you'll then be invited to submit a three-minute pitch video and supporting material. So what's in it for you? Well, together with our OIO partner network, we've been able to amass over $160,000 of support for the 10 finalists, of which there will be two runners-up and one overall winner. What does the one overall winner get? A $15,000 cash prize from our presenting partner, Bank Australia. Thank you guys very much. And they will also get over $50,000 worth of support from the OIO Partner Network. So if you are an entrepreneur, an innovator, a startup or a business that is working to create an abundant and sustainable ocean, then you should apply for PitchFest 2020. If you're not, why not share this around and tell those innovators and entrepreneurs about it? We would love to see as many applications as possible coming in from people around Australia and the world. Now, on to our guest for this week's episode. It is Richard Leck, who is the head of oceans for WWF Australia. We are very pleased to say that WWF are one of the partners of PitchFest 2020, and Richard Leck is going to be one of our esteemed judges. So in this conversation, we had a chance to understand who is Richard Leck, what is it about the ocean that he finds so alluring and empowering that he's devoted his career to it. We learn about all the work that WWF Australia are doing and globally to protect planet ocean, and particularly what WWF are doing around the idea of innovation for a sustainable ocean. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Once again, PitchFest 2020 is now live, so make sure you go to the website and share this one around widely. Thank you, as always, for your support of the Ocean Impact Podcast. Very pleased to have on the Ocean Impact podcast today, Richard Leck, who is the head of oceans at WWF Australia. How are you, Richard? Yeah, really well. Thanks for having me, Tim. No worries. Great to have you here. I thought we'd, uh, we've got a lot to talk about today with your incredible work with WWF and helping planet ocean, but why don't we go right to the beginning and let's get a little bit of a taste of, of who is Richard, Richard Leck and... How have you developed a relationship with the ocean? Gosh, well, I am I'm a little bit of a panda fossil these days. I've been in WWF around 20 years or so. So um, going right back, I guess my, um, my love of the oceans, I grew up on the coast in Sydney. Um, 
and studied and did all that kind of stuff and then and felt I needed to, to get away overseas and uh, of all places uh, ended up uh, in Egypt on the Red Sea um, and lived in Egypt for about a year or so and was lucky enough um, to start up my own sort of dive charter business. At that point, I had a, my dive instructor ticket. Um, and it was amazing. You know, the Red Sea is absolutely stunning. We had these incredible adventures all from, you know, diving right down in the Gulf of Aqaba with, you know, hundreds of hammerhead sharks, all the way to trekking through desert wadis with um, diving tanks strapped to camels and jumping into the water that way. Um, but, you know, the longer I stayed there, the more I realised how much... Um, those reefs were suffering both from the, the pressure from tourism, but you know, from the pressure of coastal development from overfishing the, I guess the, the suite of threats that coral reefs around the world face. And I was really keen to get back to Australia, do some more study. I'd always heard about how amazing the management of the Great Barrier Reef was um, and learn how to manage reefs better and then go back out, I guess, and, and take that message out and try and save reefs in areas that were less fortunate, I guess, in Australia. And it was a real eye-opener for me when I came back to Australia, I ended up working out of Sundays and Port Douglas, um, that actually we had uh, the same issues here in Australia. We were having the same degradation to the Great Barrier Reef that was, was happening in other reefs all around the world. Um, and it made me realise that we really needed to focus at home or I needed to focus at home um, first. And, you know, that, I guess the rest is history. I got a job with WWF working on our Great Barrier Reef campaign in the early 2000s. And, and since then, I've always stayed around in, in, <clears throat> in the ocean space. Fantastic. So it's, um, yeah, 2002, is it, when you, when you joined WWF and you've, you've now been there since. Um, tell us a little bit about the programs that you are leading um, at WWF Australia in the ocean space. So we've got um, a number of priority areas or regions that we focus on. Obviously, the Great Barrier Reef um, is, uh, is one of those and an area that WWF has been engaged in, as you say, for almost two decades now. Um, we've had a focus on the reef around creating new protected areas, which we were successful on in the, in the early 2000s. A focus on reducing pollution that comes from the catchment from poor farming practices, which, you know, there's been a lot of success in that space, a lot of awareness, but still a lot more work um, that, uh, that needs to happen. We ran a, a big national and actually global campaign a few years ago called Fight for the Reef, which focused on the issue of the dumping of dredge spoil from big coastal developments, usually for big port developments, which ended up with um, uh, with that practice being being banned, and a whole lot of other initiatives um, happening as well. And currently, we're really focused on uh, destructive fishing. So uh, we have a program called our Net Free North, which is about removing commercial gill nets from the very northern part of the Great Barrier Reef. That's the area that's home um, to the largest populations of, of threatened marine wildlife, turtles, dugongs and sawfish. And um, 
to remove those gill nets is something that I think would, would really benefit those species. We're also working with traditional owners up there to look at different livelihood or, or uh, income opportunities for them up on the Cape as well. Um, and then the last thing that we're really focused on um, and the area obviously that unfortunately in Australia we've had the least progress is around climate change. Um, and using the reef as a, I guess as a beacon um, for why we need to uh, invest in Australia becoming a renewable superpower, you know, has a lot of political currency. It makes a lot of sense to people. Um, and we're hoping, we've been hoping for a long time, but we're hoping that we can have more impact in that space for Australia to, you know, to actually start taking climate change much more seriously. It really is incredible when you do a bit of a deep dive into WWF and you learn just about the magnitude of the projects that you run. Tell us a little bit about what it's like working for WWF and maybe a little bit of a, a history of the organisation from your perspective. Yeah, it's a, it is a fascinating organisation to work for and I feel incredibly fortunate to have worked here as long as I have. Um, you know, partly because, you know, obviously there are issues that I care, you know, very deeply about, but also because it is a global organisation, you can feel like you have a diff, you know, I've, you know, I work for our international program for a number of years, so you feel like you can have different careers while in the same organisation. Um, we also, uh, you know, one of the great strengths of WWF is that we have multiple ways of working. So, you know, the history or the heritage, I guess, of WWF is very much a field-based organisation. So you know, we would help set up protected areas, we'd help manage those protected areas, um, we'd help do direct I guess, species recovery uh, in places where we worked. Um, and originally, you know, WWF was set up to focus on, you know, those traditional, what we think about as, as you know, those icons of, uh, of wildlife. So, you know, your big cats in Africa, obviously, the panda in China. And then as the organisation has evolved, so too as the ways of working. So, you know, still at our core, we are a field-based organisation here in Australia. We run, you know, a bunch of, of projects, both in the oceans and, and on land as well. Um, but we, we do conservation in a whole lot of other ways as well. So, you know, part of what I'm interested in is always around, you know, policy and advocacy um, and what are those big, I guess, systematic changes that you can make by working with governments or by working with um, large corporates. But we also do, um, uh, you know, traditional campaigning where, you, where we engage our supporters. WWF has, you know, around a million supporters in Australia now to, um, to engage people around an issue and then really use that momentum to to try and force change in plastics in the last sort of, um, as you know, Tim, in the last, uh, you know, a couple of years has been a really amazing example of that. But then we do other things where we, you know, we partner with, with key businesses to try and um, transform the way they work. 
at the moment we have um, a partnership with um, with Woolworths uh, focused around seafood. So really looking at the types of seafood that they buy um, and doing an analysis of their supply chain and working out which of those um, uh, products that they're purchasing have sustainability issues around them or potentially have human rights issues around them. And then working back through those um, supply chains to source products that are better produced. And then of course the other, uh, other area where WWF is very big is around innovation. Um, and you know, in recent years, um, the organisation has invested uh, a lot of time and resources into what are those, what's that new technology, what's that new way of working that can solve some of these very thorny problems because, you know, the organisation, I think next year uh, celebrates its 60th anniversary. Um, but if we'd stayed just as a wildlife organisation, just doing that on-ground intervention, you know, we would be, you know, we would still be a very small organisation with limited influence. It's about evolving and, and uh, working on those techniques and approaches that will make a difference. And where WWF really sings is when we take all those approaches and integrate them. Um, so you develop new tech, you're engaged in the policy space, you've got our supporters working together, and then you're very focused on the key people that you need to influence to make those you know, big, bold decisions that have major impact. Uh, that's when it's really, really fun. Absolutely, and I think that's really what stands out for me and I'm sure for many others when they understand what WWF does and how this approach coming at it from all angles seems to be really working because am I right and we could maybe open up a little bit of a conversation about this but there is still a lot of organizations working on environmental issues who do appear to be still sort of staying in this space of the policy and advocacy and maybe the on-ground action but haven't gone out to do a lot of that engagement with big business who are embroiled in the problem, haven't gone out to look at innovation and new ways of doing things. Yeah, look, it's true. And I, and, um, I think uh, it is important to, to have, I guess, more, more strings to the bow. Um, there's no point, I think, in, not that, you know, I, I don't think many NGOs or environment NGOs do this, but there's no point in ignoring what is the major part of is a major part of society, which is the the impact of business and corporates. Um, if you're not engaging and you're not talking to folks, then there's no way you're going to uh, achieve change. So, you know, my philosophy has always been: doesn't matter who it is. Um, always up for the conversation, always up to have, uh, to advocate, you know, the, the position that we're pursuing. Um, working in Queensland, quite often that um, is rejected pretty quickly amongst, you know, some, some politicians and some businesses that we work with. Um, but more often than not, you, you do find that common ground and, you know, sometimes the change that you're looking for by working with a particular business is relatively incremental um, and it's not the massive breakthrough that um, you might get by running a, you know, a national campaign. But it's, 
it is it, that's the kind of work when you're working with unlikely alliances is really powerful and what you find is if you nurture those relationships you can then build those things into a much bigger impact you know we we've got a few examples up here where you know we've gone into government with cane farmers and with fishers around particular policy positions or changes to legislation and that has a huge impact with decision makers that just going in as a conservationist on your own doesn't and then i think um in the innovation space um you know that is you're so hand in glove with business in that space as well um uh, businesses will want to work with an organization that is investing their time and their expertise is open to new ideas um and is actually you know, trying to to build a new product that will generate a return. Um, there's, uh, we should absolutely always be engaged in that. Was there a part of WWF's history where there was a certain leader that came and, and started to put on the, this pragmatic lens or has it been built into the culture of the organisation since its very early days? Yeah, I think WWF has always been um, a pretty pragmatic organisation. And part of that stems from, I think, um, from having to work in so many different countries. Um, you know, we're in over 100 countries all around the world. So, and, um, you know, many of those countries, you know, advocacy is not an option, for example. It's very diff difficult to do advocacy in China, for example. You need to be... Um, partnering with business or working on ground, um, but uh, running public campaigns that you know, obviously doesn't work. And, and so I think, you know, WWF's um, ethos has always been to, to largely be in the centre space, I guess. Um, and when there's, um, you know, when we've gone through the process of, you know, making sure that the the positions or, or um, the goals that we have are very science-based. When we talk to industry um, and put our positions forward but perhaps haven't got anywhere. When we've talked to politicians and tried to get a decision to, um, uh, to be made but it falls on deaf ears. You know, we do bring a certain amount of power um, behind us when we do run public advocacy campaigns, but it's not the first thing that we do. Um, you know, the first thing that we do is often work through the inside tracks, I guess, to try and make sensible decisions happen. Um, and, you know, we, we come to the public advocacy space probably a little bit later than some other roles. How does it work then with its operations in 100 uh, countries? How does Australia then uh, function? Is it its own sort of regulated uh, entity or does it have a lot of inputs from global? How does WWF run on a, on a global level? Yeah, it's a great question. So all most WWFs around the world uh, are separate incorporated organisations. So here in Australia, we have, uh, we have our own board and our CEO, all that kind of stuff, but we're part of, I guess, the overall um, WWF um, network. In some, I guess, less developed countries where 
there isn't the sort of fundraising base to have their own boards, they might be part of uh, the international structure. Um, but mostly WWF operates by um, embedding itself in the country um, and having an independent structure um, from the global network. I guess what um, uh, is really useful of being part of that global um, global network of, of conservationists is that when there are issues that um, you know there's that cliche of local to global but when there are issues that really need global attention this might be say an international treaty on plastics might be the international whaling convention or obviously the, the UNFCCC the, the climate change convention you can then bring a whole bunch of different national perspectives from all around Australia to feed into our, our global advocacy. Um, and so we do have um, a team of, uh, of folks who work for WWF globally who do that global advocacy piece. And again, you know, it's a power that is fairly unique to WWF to have that sort of national representation going into a global impact. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit then, so this uh, almost 20 year history that you've had at WWF and working on oceans that entire time. So how have you seen attitudes and campaigns change in the context of the ocean since joining WWF? Yeah, I think um, oceans are often, uh, I guess when I first started, often a little bit forgotten in the conservation world. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's often hard to um, imagine what's going on beneath the surface of the sea. And so, you know, sometimes I think it feels a little bit niche. You know, the big conservation gains are, you know, in forestry or species, terrestrial species recovery or cute and furry animals and things. And all those things are very important. Um, but, um, I think the evolution has really gone from the focus on iconic spaces like the Great Barrier Reef. We also run um, programs in Antarctica, programs up in Asia Pacific in the Coral Triangle, which are really important. But there's been this, this movement in the last few years where um, national governments have recognised the importance of oceans both to their people both to the species they're trying to protect but also to their economies as well um, and we're starting to see a lot more um, you know national level focused around ocean protection um, and it being a lot more prominent than you know than it once was I think in Australia you know Australians have such an affinity for the coast we are coastal people um, you know we we uh, you know we take such delight in seeing the, you know things like the whale migra migration every year. I think ocean conservation in Australia has always been something we hold very close to our hearts. Um, but I I do see an increasing amount of momentum that's coming coming forward. You know that I touched on it before the issue of plastics. I just it blew me away. I mean you did some absolutely brilliant work in that space as well. But, you know, so much of um, the focus around plastic seemed to be organic. You know, it seemed to be that people um, 
saw an issue that they could do something about, saw something that they cared deeply about and saw this impact on it that they just despised and got active, whether it be in their own home, whether it be joining campaigns, whether it be the way that they shopped. And for NGOs like mine, it was more about harnessing that um, that energy and that momentum into you know, things like national policies around single-use plastics or container deposit schemes. But instead of what we normally have to do of generating um, uh, generating a whole bunch of public support, it already was there. And I think it is because oceans play such a, you know, they're so much part of our psyche. It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because, yeah, you're right, we're absolutely... Uh, devoted coastal dwelling and ocean loving nation but it does feel like until the last few years we were taking perhaps a lot of that for granted so issues like plastic pollution where it's so visceral and and visceral uh, visual and visceral and obviously you know coral bleaching and others that we sort of have I think we've sort of um, our guard is a bit more up now and so it then creates a, a much greater opportunity to, to, to drive that engagement towards tangible outcomes, like you've just mentioned there with waste policy or pollution remediation and, and various other campaigns. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I still, we obviously have a long way to go. Um, uh, you know, fisheries are still very much, you know, many, you know, many parts of the world just seen as a resource to exploit. Um, uh, you know, we sadly have failed to deliver a, you know, a national network of marine uh, protected areas here in Australia. Um, you know, we had the opportunity over the last decade and unfortunately, you know, we've got a very, um, you know, in, inferior network, I guess. Um, you know, around the world you are seeing, um, you know, focus on things like deep sea mining, um, particularly in the Pacific and our northern neighbours. You're seeing, you know, a focus that we need to, you know, dig up more parts of the seabed and, you know, get those valuable minerals with um, less regard for the environment than, than is needed. And yeah, as I said previously, it does it's this eternal frustration that you can see how. Um, uh, you know, I, I always say that, that coral bleaching is like climate change in your face. There's no greater visual impact than actually being watching a coral turn white. And, um, you know, being fortunate or unfortunate enough to be in the water a couple of times during um, a bleaching event. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and it does still flummox me that for um just the Great Barrier Reef, let alone all the other ocean habitat that we have around around Australia. You know, it's it, the reef has provides employment for about sixty-four thousand people. The tourism industry is worth about six billion a year, obviously when COVID isn't on. Um, and yet we we struggle to take any real meaningful action to to have a reef safe climate policy and you know, really hoping that changes in coming years. Yeah, and um, I too, like, I don't want to, you know, look at those success stories in terms of just 
public awareness and attitudes increasing from a baseline to a really high number. But um, I suppose what I'm really fueled by having seen with the plastics issue that bursting into the mainstream, I really look at that and analyze that and try and figure out, well, how can the same momentum build around fishing and overfishing? How can the same momentum build around protected areas and all these other challenges that we face? Because there's obviously something really special in that and mobilizing community to me seems to be the greatest tool um, that we have in our bow um, to, to try and institute change. Let's talk a little bit then about um, innovation. It's already come up a couple of times in the conversation so far, but is there some examples of where WWF is looking at the opportunities around innovation to further progress on protecting planet ocean? Yeah, so um, you asked previously, you know, uh, is there particular people inside WWF that have been responsible for this shift? And I would be remiss of me not to mention our CEO, Dermot, um, who is has really uh, driven the organisation to focus in the innovation space in the last few years. Um, there's a number of, of initiatives that have come through that. One of them um, is uh, an initiative called OpenSC. Um, and OpenSC, the SC uh, stands for supply chain. It's about um, being able to trace the products that you um, are purchasing. And initially, we focused on seafood um, with a company called Austral Fisheries, which is a, a big um, leading Australian fishery. And focusing, so uh, to be able to provide the ability for um, you know, if you go into a restaurant um, and you look at the uh, at the menu, you can have a QR code on the menu and you can scan your phone, you can find out exactly where that fish um, was sourced from. You can find out whether it had um, a sustainability certification, you can find out um, how it was handled, all that kind of stuff um, almost instantly. Um, and we, uh, it's, a, it's still early days for OpenSC, but you know, we do have um, that commercially operational through that fishery. We're looking at other commodities as well. So um, beef and sugar and milk and um, uh, to know that what you are actually purchasing is you're, you're directly accessing the information you need to be able to make a better choice. Um, I think that's really exciting and I think um, you know, it, it lends itself to other issues that we care about as well beyond just sustainability. Um, you know, you can uh, use the same sort of technology um, and set up the right processes around human rights, for example. Um, that's becoming an increasingly, people are becoming increasingly aware of the issues around uh, human rights and fisheries and no one wants to be purchasing seafood that's come from um, vessels that are not treating their crew or not treating observers in the way that they should be. So that's a really exciting program. Um, we also have another initiative called Impactio, um, which I guess in some ways is similar to Ocean Pitch Fest um, in that uh, we provide opportunities and funding rounds um, for um, uh, 
for people who are way smarter than me, I guess, to, to put their ideas forward. We have a bunch of curators who set up, who look at those ideas, and then some limited funding that's available to develop those to the next stage. Um, and yeah, you know, those, those initiatives have really taken off um, very well. And what's, what's interesting working for WWF, you know, innovation is just across everything that we do now. So if I'm developing a program, I sort of, I, I need to be able to demonstrate that I've thought about the, the innovation opportunities within there. We have a, an innovation team that we work with and yeah, it's, it's, um, uh, it's a new space for us, but something that's having a, you know, a really nice impact. Yeah, and you mentioned their austral fisheries and um, worth pointing out to our listeners if they haven't gone back to the earlier episodes of the podcast. We did have David Carter, the CEO of Austral Fisheries on, I think it was episode four, and, and we did speak at length about the challenges they had in, um, in opening up a sustainable supply chain around the, the Patagonian toothfish. Obviously, there was a lot of concern there around illegal operators um, sort of really taking an unsustainable quota of that fish and and David and his uh, team they they knew this could be a sustainable fishery and so he's a real example I suppose of these business leaders in industries that might otherwise be painted with the one brush mm -hmm. and to say well actually here is a um, an industry that can be highly sustainable if it adopts and employs all these contemporary tools out there. Yeah, and I think um, it's great to see what Austral has done and been, um, you know, a real pioneer in that space. I think where I'm really excited about is when you get into fisheries that um, operate, you know, potentially in less developed countries, um, maybe aren't. Is sort of high value product that the Patagonian toothfish is um, and how you can set up systems where um, those fisheries that are probably having the biggest impact in terms of sustainability, potentially having impact in terms of issues of human rights, you set up systems to provide that kind of transparency and, and that, I guess, that system of improvement to to make sure that they're operating at a level that people you know, are comfortable with and that they should be operating at. That I think is, if you can use the kind of technology that's been developed with Austral and apply it in a, in a situation where there's less data, less, um, uh, you know, less rigid systems, that will be really interesting as well. That's so true because as you've identified there, uh, a high value product like a Patagonian toothfish and a business that has an approach like Austral, you know, that's obviously something he can pioneer and invest in. But I'm just trying to think about the food that has come into my household this week, just how much of that has got any features that would allow me to trace back to its point of origin and all those associated impacts with it. Sure, I, I shop consciously and that that gives me a degree of peace of mind, but just imagine how much of a game changer it would be if this technology could start to be embedded into a huge range of the products that come into our consumer lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you look at um, certification of fisheries, the penetration of the certification of fisheries is still, you know, sits at around 20%. So 
you know, that means 80% of fisheries that are out there that are supplying our food and food all around the world aren't certified. Um, so can you set up systems that are less, um, uh, less I, I guess, less costly, um, but just become part of what you do to be able to provide that transparency? That's what, you know, that's really what OpenSC is all about. Hmm. So obviously people out there can, uh, you know, look into that and understand what the goals are of OpenSC. But would you have any sort of messaging there for people, perhaps people tuning in who, who do consume seafood? Is there some simple things that they could be doing right now just to start their journey to having a more sustainable relationship with the, the protein that comes from the ocean? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's, there's um, some really good seafood guides um, that are out there now, the Good Fish Guide that the Australian Marine Conservation Society um, publishers gives um, some really valuable information in terms of making better choices. Um, I mean, my wife always finds me slightly embarrassing, well, probably across a whole bunch of reasons she finds me slightly embarrassing, but certainly when we go out to a restaurant, I, I will just always ask, you know, where did the seafood come from? Um, and, um, you know, when people don't know, then you don't purchase it. Um, and, um, I think the more people ask, and you can use that for all all products that, or you know, all meals that you're purchasing out. That's what people respond to, and it's interesting that you you know when you look at coals and woolies, and coals and woolies have a long way to go on a whole bunch of issues, but the transformation in the information that they are providing to us in our daily shop is pretty extraordinary, and it's because people ask questions and that's that's the number one thing I think that will change um, will change the types of products that we use is if we ask where it comes from if they don't know don't buy it um, and if they do if you know if they know and they can demonstrate that it's been better produced that's fantastic I think there is in seafood there's a real issue in Australia around um, uh, the lack of standards around imports, um, you know, that goes to issues around simply just the names of seafood can get very confusing. There's different names from different countries, um, but there's very few standards in terms of um, how that seafood is produced before it's imported into Australia. And that's an area where I think, um, you know, I hope we do more work going forwards to give people more confidence that the imported seafood that they buy um, uh, is produced at a better standard too. Yeah, and another really good podcast that we've recorded, might have been episode six or seven, was with Ian Urbina, who wrote um, uh, a book called The Outlaw Ocean, and it was a five-year investigative report he did for the New York Times and, you know, really, really probing into the... Uh, you know, the curse of the high seas and the lawlessness associated with it. And I think this is really starting to open up a new narrative around just this um, acceptance we have that, hey, it's, it's protein from the ocean or it's protein from aquaculture. You know, we're going to consume it blindly and we need to stop that. And so sort of back to your point about, you know, your wife sort of squirming when you're in the restaurant there asking these probing questions. Something I talk about a lot is... Um, is that sphere of influence you have around you. So next time you're allowed to go out in a group and you're at a restaurant and you're that one person who asks the waiter or waitress about the provenance of the food 
and all your friends might be squirming, but that influence you're having and that acceptance we have as a culture to understand the story behind where stuff comes from is so critically valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so, you know, I think it's still, it's still niche, but I think that, as you say, the provenance of food is becoming, um, you know, such a big issue for so many people um, not just, you know, obviously in Australia being a wealthy country, but I think all around the world, we're, you know, we're seeing that through all our offices. Um, and, yeah, it's about how to provide that, how we make sure that people have faith in the systems that are set up. The worst thing that you can do is to set up a system that doesn't provide the, the confidence that people need, isn't robust enough, and that's... Um, you know, you, you always see these media reports of, of sort of sham labels that get set up and, and that's that's problematic. And so having that kind of robustness and the transparency to make sure that the system sitting behind um, the information that you're providing, that, that is the absolute key as well. Great. So in the instance of OpenSC, um, I read that it, uh, it grabbed about $4 million in seed funding late last year. So it's on its way and it'll be further developed. Am I right in saying it was, um, it was a product of, of Panda Labs? you want to tell us a little bit about um, Panda Labs and, and what's going, I guess, globally around innovation for WWF? Yeah, it was a, a product of Panda Labs, and Panda Labs is is uh, is like an incubation system that we have across all our WWF offices. Um, and uh, yeah, OpenSC is the, I, I guess the shining example that has come through there. Um, you know, we also in our US office through Panda Labs, we've set up a system. Um, which businesses can use to assess the, the packaging that they use as well. So basically um, they can go through a self-assessment self that then um, we have a third-party verification of that system as well. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's the classic examples that we've used around wildlife for many years as well, you know, things like... Um, uh, you know, WWF was involved in very early days around camera tracking and drones and all that kind of stuff, but then using that information to feed into how you design systems of protected areas is really interesting. And that's part of, we've just got a new program um, focused on um, uh, well and dolphin protection. Part of that is looking at those uh, how do we set up systems to identify key areas of biodiversity for whales? What are the um, ideal, <coughs> excuse me, what are the ideal uh, conservation initiatives that we need to implement? And how do we do that in the, in the most cost effective way? And it's, you know, often that is around remote sensing, smart tech um, on ground, um, and really interesting to be able to. Uh, I guess design protected areas both in the water but also you know remotely as well because some of those areas that you work in are really really expensive and really really difficult to um to operate in and the last point is um uh something that you touched on around that issue of you know the tragedy of the commons of the high seas um 
where NGOs around the world have really invested in remote satellite technology and detecting fishing fleets, fishing where they shouldn't be. You know, a recent example in the last couple of weeks has been a massive Chinese fleet sitting off the Galapagos near Ecuador. Um, and, you know, I think that sort of work is really important to be able to, to shine a light on poor practice. Absolutely. And for anyone who's picking up that media alert to then once again start that storytelling process and tracing it right back to the relationship that we have with this concept of just never-ending abundant protein from the ocean with no consequence well when you actually go and look and peek under the hood and realize the stories behind this stuff most people actually don't like the story that they're learning yeah so you mentioned before um, our Ocean Impact Pitch Fest, which at the time of this uh, podcast going out will be a live event, which we're very excited about and very thankful to have you as a judge of Pitch Fest. Um, yeah, give us maybe a little bit of a taste of, of what you, know, you might be looking for. Have you been involved with any sort of competitions in the past that have looked at innovation that can create a positive impact on the ocean? Yeah, look, I, I'm really excited about it um, because, you know, I, I think in my role I can get uh, locked into certain things that I want to see achieved and, um, and then being involved in a forum where some really fresh thinking starts uh, you're exposed to is just absolutely brilliant. Um, I remember WWF um, a few years ago in our US office ran something called The Big Think um, and that was again uh, looking at some challenges for uh, challenges for the ocean and some new ideas to come out of that. And uh, you know that was early days of looking at aquaculture um, and you know seaweed aquaculture and how you can potentially look at the different types of feed that goes into carnivorous fish. How you can develop aquaculture on land where um, you know, the water that is discharged from those facilities is better than the water that, you know, goes into them. And the opportunities around those facilities being um, uh, supplied by renewable energy, I think, you know, that, that stuff 10 years ago, we're still talking about now. Um, but, you know, it kind of blew my mind to think about, you know, what are those sort of opportunities to basically have this sort of closed loop system I it would be nice if we'd had a little bit more progress on some of that <laughs> some of that in recent years so yeah who knows i'm just really looking forward to seeing what ideas come through um and i guess for me i always sort of relate those ideas to what we can do at scale as well so that will be the i guess the filter that that i take to um to what what comes forward yeah absolutely and i think um I'll ask you that question. I mean, do you sort of share this, uh, this sort of belief and these values that I'm developing around, well, if there's people out there who've got big ideas and have got the tenacity and the passion to try and turn them into something, sure, there's going to be a lot of obstacles and hard work to turn it into that successful, scalable model. But do you believe in WWF, Does they do they believe that, we really need to be shining a bit more of a light and providing more support to, to the big thinkers that are looking at things differently for the future. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, that's, I think that's where excitement comes from. And I think that's where impact comes from is um, you need those, uh, you need the core, con in my job, you need those core conservation goals that, you know, you have around protected areas or you have around saving species. But you absolutely need the imagination and the impact that comes from a new space as well. And as much as I'd like to, you know, as much as it is appropriate to celebrate the successes we've had around ocean conservation in the last, um, you know, 10, 20 years, the overall story is not good. You know, we're still seeing declines in, the, in, in our resources. We're still seeing declines in lots of species. And that's where, you know, big thinking ideas that sort of capture public attention, that can potentially capture a source of investment that hasn't been um, thought of before and can have an impact that um, is beyond the scope of what we've normally done. It's so exciting. So, yeah, no pressure for people who are providing um, ideas into Ocean Pitch Fest, but, yeah, that would be nice to see. Yeah, look, and I have... Um... I have the confidence that they're definitely out there, whether they're uh, established yet or whether they're a couple of steps away. But that's why for us, it is all about building the ecosystem, uh, bringing those individuals and businesses in and then undertaking that important task of nurturing. So whether they're going to be the finalists or winners of the Ocean Impact Pitch Fest in 2020 or beyond, we'll, uh, we'll soon find out. Absolutely. Look, it's been great to talk to you, Richard, and um, really appreciate your time today. I might leave it to you to pass on any closing words, anything you really wanted to talk about today that we haven't got to yet, and obviously, finally, um, directing people to where they can find out more about your work. Yeah, well, look, firstly, thank you, Tim, so much for the opportunity and the opportunity upcoming to be part of the Ocean Impact Pitch Fest. Um, you know, I, I think my parting words would be, um, you know, it is, it's exactly what we were just talking about. It is around nurturing those ideas. It is around nurturing, um, you know, a small number of people to make big things happen. I always, you know, I look at some of the work that I've seen through my career um, and that has, you know, started out really small and then had, you know, massive impact. And often it is, you know, two or three or, you know, people with, with a handful of support staff around that will make that, um, that big leap. And, you know, OpenSC is an example of that where, um, you know, it was an idea that, geez, wouldn't it be good if we, know, we knew where our seafood came from? Um, and that has grown into something which, as you say, you know, attracted around $4 million of, um, of initial funding rounds. Um, you know, when I look at some of the big wins that we've had around, say, the Great Barrier Reef, for example, often that is really two or three people who are living and breathing, um, who are doing, um, living and breathing the issue, who are doing that interaction between mobilising people and having the right conversations with the right people that then, you know, essentially change the, uh, change the future of the reef. Um, so. You know, that's, again, a lot of pressure. 
Um, but I think that's that's the observation I've always had is that it's often just a small group of people that can have a massive impact. So we need to give them the tools and support to do their best work. Absolutely, we do. Thank you so much for your time, Richard. Cheers, Tim. Thanks.